Welcome. You are listening to Bible teaching from Island Community Church in downtown Memphis, Tennessee. We hope today's message helps you grow in relationship with Jesus. You can access more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church at iccmemphis.com. Thank you for listening. Well, church family, if you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you to get them open to the book of Romans today. We are going to be in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, if you've got your Bible, and we're going to be continuing our series, What He's Done, and our study of this amazing book of Romans. And today, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I would love it if there's any way possible that it's not a distraction for you to actually receive from the message to, to, to write and take notes. Today is one of those days where there's just so much goodness in this passage and so much complexity in this passage that I really believe you'd be helped by taking notes. But if you are taking notes, um, the title of today's message, I've entitled it, The Wonder of God's Salvation from Romans chapter 11. We've been talking about Romans now since, uh, well, last fall, and we've been looking at the gospel message. Ultimately, there's good news for you this morning. There is good news for you. It's not that you're a great person. It's not that you're ever gonna do great things. It's not that you're ever gonna be good enough for salvation. It's good news of who God is and the good news of what God has done in his love and by his grace for you. The good news of the gospel is that God has done everything needed from start to finish to rescue you from sin, Satan, death itself, and to put you back right with himself. God is a reconciling God, and he wants to reconcile with you on the basis of what he has done for you in Jesus Christ. He loves you so much, and his grace is sufficient. His work is enough. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Everything is needed. Everything that is needed is now done And now the good news is that you can know that he loves you and you can know that he gives grace and you can receive as you open your heart to him and you trust him, turning from self and sin to him, you can receive life again with God now and forevermore. It's the good news of the gospel. All right, we've been talking about these verses over and over. Surely you have them memorized by now, right? If you're new this morning, you can just read them on the screen with us. But starting in chapter one, verse 16, we see the thesis of the book and it says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We've been talking about how the gospel is both foundational and transformational for life with God now and forever. And as we've been going through the book, I've been trying to kind of help y'all understand the structure of the book, all right? Now today we're gonna be uh, finishing out the middle section of the book, which I'll talk about in just a second, and it is just so packed with goodness for you today, I truly believe. But as we think about the macro structure of the book, you gotta remember that in the first eight chapters, what Paul lays out for us are these wonderful gospel realities. These foundational truths of who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ and what it looks like to be right with him on the basis of faith alone, by his grace alone, through Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. All of these wonderful gospel realities poured out in the early chapters. And then I told you, all right, starting next week, actually, next Sunday, I hope you come, because next Sunday, we start Romans chapter 12, and at the end of the book, from the start of chapter 12 all the way through the end of the book through 16, what you see are these incredible, real life, like Monday morning at work, Tuesday afternoon hanging out with my neighbor on the porch, Wednesday as I'm trying to figure out how to vote in the, in the voting booth. I, sh- I shouldn't name that on Tuesday because you never vote on Wednesdays. But anyway, all these wonderful uh, life applications that come straight out of the gospel are at the end of the book. So you've got gospel realities, gospel applications, kind of bookending, but in the middle, The section that we're currently in and we'll be concluding today is this interesting section that speaks of the wonder of God in salvation. How before he moves into the gospel application, he pauses just to go, isn't God amazing? 
in the way that he works, in the way that he has saved, in, in the way that he has moved towards you in his love, in the way that he has shown mercy, in the way that he has worked out his redemptive purpose and promise from the beginning of time to now and as you look into the future, isn't God amazing? And in this middle section, we are called to be worshipers, to worship in this wondrous God who is, who was, and who is, and who is to come. Our God is wonderful. And Paul is summoning us, and I'm summoning you today. Won't you be a worshiper? Won't you be one who peers into the nature of God and the work of God in salvation and just choose to go, God, you are wonderful. Will you be a worshiper? That's the point of this section. Now we looked at how the section is kind of broken down. In chapter nine, we learn a ton about God's sovereignty, how God is free to do as he pleases. God is not beholden to any of us. He is sovereign and he is free. And if any of us, if any of us are saved, it's not because of anything we've done. It's just God's sheer mercy. Then in chapter 10, last week, we looked at how not only is God sovereign, but also we are responsible. How we, all of us, are required to respond. Paul deals with the question, well, why then are the Jewish people not saved? And he helps us know it's because of the hardness of their heart. It's because they rejected Christ. A response is required. Belief in Christ is necessary. And if any of us are lost, it's because we have rejected Christ. But anyone, anyone can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. So we see these two things that many, many of us try to hold at odds with one another. You know, if you only read chapter nine, I've told you, you can only think God is only sovereign. We have nothing to do with things. But if you only read chapter 10, you go, oh, it's only man. It's all man's choice. And Paul goes, no, God is both sovereign and we are responsible. How is that, Pastor Barrett? That doesn't make sense. And that's why Paul concludes this section, which we'll be looking at this particular passage today with these verses at the end of chapter 11. If you've got your Bible, you're already open there to chapter 11. We'll read the whole chapter today, but just point your attention to the end again, because I'm trying to remind you that at the end of the day, this is not about us trying to figure it all out, although God wants our minds. He loves thinkers. He wants us to know truth. But at the end of the day, we have to trust. And oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be the glory forever. At the end of the day, God calls us to wonder in him. Stay right where you are in chapter 11 because what I want to do um, is start in verse one because our passage today is actually this very chapter from which those verses that we just read came from. So as we talk today about the wonder of God's salvation, I wanna start at verse one. I'm gonna read from the ESV. And I'm gonna go ahead and tell you it could be much easier for me to skip from chapter 10 to chapter 12. If you've ever read chapter 11, you go, holy moly, that's complex. What am I to make of this? Anybody ever felt that as you read this section or this particular chapter? Um, but I just wanna go ahead and tell you, lean in. All of God's word is breathed out by him and it is meant for your good. It is profitable for us. And I really believe as we walk through the scripture of Romans 11 today, you're gonna to see not only is it interesting in the sense of like study, but it is moving in the sense of our being compelled to become a greater worshiper of God and also being compelled to take our place in humility before him, but also activity in the world so that other people might know him too. I'll start with verse one. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself as, am an Israelite, 
a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be called grace. Well, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, then what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. For if you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they might now also receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth 
of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be glory forever. Amen. This is God's word. And today we're going to be talking about the wonder of God's salvation from Romans chapter 11. The main point this morning is this. We should be amazed at the depth of God's wisdom and knowledge and give him glory for his mercy and grace. At the end of the day, what God wants from your heart, this is a heart thing, it's not just a head thing. Yes, there's head things to understand and I know we have thinking people and we love you. But at the end of the day, this is a heart thing. God wants your heart, he wants your worship. He wants you to come to a point where you go, wow. How deep is God's wisdom and how deep is his knowledge and how much should I praise him for his mercy toward me and his grace toward me and all who believe? That is the main point of the passage today, all right? And we're gonna walk through it together um, and I'm gonna walk through it in four distinct sections. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you what I've tried to do today because I love you and it is my joy to labor in God's word for you. I have tried to label each of the sections in two ways. One of them as it relates to the heady understanding of what is actually happening, what Paul's talking about, what this is about as it relates to God and his relationship with Israel and what will happen in the end. But the other that I've put here in a different color, in each of the four sections, I've made a statement that I believe would help you to write down or try to receive in your heart today. A statement that reflects where I believe God wants our hearts as we understand these things with our heads. So we're, we're understanding their head, but it's moving to our hearts. We're getting this in history, but we understand the present reality, the, pr- the present ways that God is compelling us to believe. So section one, I've labeled like this, the remnant of Israel. It comes from the first 10 verses of chapter 11. The remnant of Israel. That's the heady thing for us to understand. But the heart thing that's paired with it is this. We need to be encouraged by God's faithfulness. And I'm going to get more into that in a moment. But we got to understand the remnant of Israel. And in our hearts, we really need to receive encouragement because our God is a faithful God. A statement that I could make to help you understand what's going on in this passage as it relates to the heady thing is this. If you want to understand verses 1 to 10, understand this. Despite the unbelief, all right, of the majority of Israel. So we know from chapter 10 that majority of Jewish people, ethnic Jewish people, have rejected the gospel. They've rejected Christ. They've continued to try it their own way. And there may be people here who still have not come to the end of trying to be right with God on the basis of what you do. There's no way to be right with God like that, but the Jewish people in their hardness of heart and in their pride and self-righteousness rejected brokenness. They rejected crying out to Jesus for salvation. We know that. But, But what we've got to understand is despite the majority of them rejecting Christ, God has preserved a remnant of believers among the ethnic Jewish people who have received his grace. Now, several ways that Paul gives evidence for this in the text. We're gonna walk through these first 10 verses, all right? So look at your scripture because I'm just gonna try to teach you what your scripture says. Now there's evidence for this. The first evidence is Paul himself, verses one and the start of verse two. I ask then, has God rejected his people, and he goes, no way. What's the evidence? Four, evidence one. I myself am an Israelite, Paul speaking, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So Paul's going, yo, look at me. Test 
you, you do the uh, Ancestry.com or the, what is it? One, two, three, me or something like that. I don't even know these things. You buy one of those DNA kits, Paul goes. Test me. Buy it for me for Christmas. I'll take the test and I'll show you. I bleed Jewish. That's my background. Like, I'm, I'm a Jewish of all Jewish, and yet, I've been saved. I'm surrendered to Christ. I, I know my life is owed to his grace. He's saying, I was the hardest of hearts. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor of the church. I was one who had rejected Christ, and yet God broke through to me. And I'm here to tell you, I'm a Jew of Jews, and yet God broke through to my heart. He loves me. Therefore, God has not rejected his Jewish people, and, and I'm a prime example. God has not rejected, he says, start of verse two, those who he foreknew those who God committed to in advance, who he foresaw. We know Psalm 94, 14, for the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. He cannot unknow the people who he knows are his, and God has not forsaken them. And Paul is saying, he's not forsaken, and look at me, I'm a prime example. God has shown me grace, and I'm an ethnic Jew, second evidence. Not only do we have Paul, but we have Elijah. Paul walks in Elijah to Starbucks meeting with you. Paul calls a meeting with you. Hey, can we go get a chai tea latte? Can we talk about this? You're wondering about God's faithfulness, okay? And he walks in Elijah, so to speak, into the conversation with you. And he goes, I want you to think for a second. If you doubt that God's been gracious to the Jewish people today, he goes, if you don't believe it through my story, let's just think about the story of Elijah. Verses two through four, the second part of two. He says, do you not know? Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars and, and I alone am left and they seek my life. Now, what Paul's doing, all right, so just Old Testament history here, very interesting, okay, so cross-reference this, maybe you could write it down if you've never studied 1 Kings before, 1 Kings chapter 19, all right? So what happens is, Elijah, being faithful to God, has just been basically the leader of this wonderful, powerful display of God, where God put away those who were idolatrous on the, on the Mount of Carmel, and this wonderful display of God against the prophets and the priest of this idolatrous God. And Elijah was right there in the middle of it all, calling down fire from heaven, essentially. But word got back from King Ahab to his wife Jezebel of what Elijah had done and basically seeks after Elijah to kill him. Elijah is running away for his life, essentially. Ends up over near, near Mount Horeb which is where this happens, goes into a cave, basically hiding away, and the Lord comes to him and goes, Elijah, what are you doing, dude? Why are you here? And Elijah says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, they've thrown down your altars, and they've killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. What Elijah's gotten to, he's just gotten to a place where he's going, I, I'm the only one who loves you, Lord. I'm the only one who believes you. Why are you here, Elijah? By the way, he repeated that again in the passage. He does the same thing again. Why? He's pressing into Elijah's heart. Earthquake comes, he doesn't hear the Lord. Fire comes, he doesn't hear the Lord. He hears the Lord in a still, small voice. And again, God says, why are you here? Why are you acting this way? Well, well Lord, I'm the only one. And Paul says, do you not remember what God spoke back to Elijah? After Elijah had that attitude, what was God's reply to him? God said to him, I have kept for myself, Elijah, 7,000 men who have not 
bowed to Baal. It's a direct quote, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18, all right? I have left 7,000, all the knees of whom have not bowed to Baal, every mouth that has not kissed him. In other words, what Elijah is being told by God is, don't you know, Elijah, that you're not alone? That in the midst of your own ethnic people, there's, I see more than what you see. And I'm telling you, Elijah, it's more than just you. I have preserved a remnant. Everybody got it? So what Paul's saying is you can know that God has preserved a remnant. Now, number three, the third piece of evidence, we've got Paul, Elijah, and then we just have God's ongoing grace. We just have the evidence of his ongoing grace, verses five through 10. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, works, grace would no longer be grace. So what then? Israel failed to obtain what it's seeking. In other words, he's saying God has poured out grace. And there is grace that comes to the Jewish people. But if people have rejected it, it's because, or if they have not obtained it, it's because they have rejected it. They themselves hardened themselves against it. And as written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Their eyes be darkened so they can't see and bend their backs forever. But the thing is, while many, while many rejected God, while many said, no, I'm going to do it myself. I'll go my own way. I don't want to depend on God. I don't want to be surrendered to one above me. I'm going to work this out myself. While many rejected, bowing their knee, at the same time, God was gracious to many and saved many. Isaiah 10, 23, for though your people Israel be as a sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. So Paul walks in the evidence and he says, despite the majority of Israel rejecting Christ and not believing, God has preserved a remnant. Those who have believed and those who have received his grace. Now, you understand that with your head? Everybody there? Where you're going historically, intellectually, I can grasp this. I can look at Paul, I can look at Elijah, and I can look at the ongoing grace of God, and I can see that God has not totally rejected Israel. God has preserved some who believe he has been working with grace, and you can see it to this day. Everybody there intellectually. Now the heart thing, what God wants from us is to be encouraged by his faithfulness. Namely this, God is more able, friends, and more merciful, friends, than many of us imagine. He is more able and more merciful than many of us imagine. God always preserves a remnant. Even in times of spiritual darkness, God is working. God is working. You never stop, you never stop working. Y'all know that song? Even when my eyes cannot see it, even when my heart cannot feel it, you never stop. I'm sorry, I'm not a singer. That's why they have not put me on the worship team yet, all right? I've not applied either, let me just say that. But what he's saying is, God never stops working. Even in times where you go, things are so dark, whether it's in your personal life and circumstance, whether it's in your family, whether it's you look around at society today, you look at the world, the rumors of wars, the strife, the conflict, Sudan right now, Russia and Ukraine, the outright rebellion in our own land against God, the twist and the manipulations of what is clear truth in the scripture. You look at it and you go, man, things are so dark. Where is God? Has he abandoned us forever? And I'm here to tell you, this passage is here to tell you, God is more able and more merciful than you probably imagined. 
And even when to your eyes and in your heart things feel very dark and things are because of people's rebellion against God, let me tell you this, the hope is not that people will come out of darkness in and of themselves. The hope is that God is still working to shine his marvelous light. The hope is that God is still gracious. The hope is that God preserves a remnant, even in times of of spiritual darkness. There has always been among Israel a faithful remnant. And that should call us today to continue to be faith-filled and faithful unto God, even when everyone around us is not doing the same. Would you agree? In your neighborhood, you might be the only one. In your campus, you, you might be the only one, it feels, or in your city or some of our missionaries working among unreached groups, and it feels so lonely to trust Christ and to continue in faithfulness toward Christ. But I am here to tell you, stay faithful. Believe him and be faithful unto him because he is more able and merciful than you could imagine, and he is at work calling people to himself even when you cannot see it. I believe many of us, similar to what Elijah experienced find ourselves at times in a cave, running away. Find ourselves at times lodging ourselves there and complaining, kind of whining to the Lord. With Emma Grace, anytime she whines, I say, do you need the wambulance? And I show up. And it's almost like, it's almost like God showing up to Elijah and he's going, why are you here? What are you doing here? Fill in your name. Be encouraged. He, had, he was rebuking Elijah. Elijah, you think you're the only one. You're putting all this pressure on yourself. This is not about you, Elijah. This is about me, and I am working. You can't see it, but there's 7,000 others who also have faith like you. Be encouraged to persevere in faith. Amen? That's the word from these first 10 verses. Secondly, Paul says, I want you to understand not just the remnant of Israel, but he also wants you to understand the inclusion of the Gentiles and the way that God has worked. The inclusion of the Gentiles. This is from verses 11 to 24. Now, the inclusion of the Gentiles is the head thing for you to understand, but the heart thing that God wants for you from this section, I really believe, is to be humbled by God's undeserved grace. So there's something to understand about the way God is working among the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, but there's a heart thing God wants for you. And that is for you to be deeply humbled by the grace of God that has been shown to you that is not deserved. Now, verse 11 kicks it off. And the basic question is, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And the answer is, by no means. In other words, did God do this just to do this for Israel's sake alone, just so that they would not believe? Paul goes, no, 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 no. When God is working, there's a million things that he's doing that you cannot see, and they're always good. But in this particular case, God was doing something marvelous. Now, the marvelous thing that God's doing is this. If you want to understand this basic section, here it is. What the marvelous thing that God was doing is as the majority of Israel rejected Christ, they rejected the gospel. Here's what happened. Their rejection led to all of us who are not ethnic Jews today. Is there anybody here that's not an ethnic Jew? You don't have to raise your hand, but you can think in your heart, yes, that's me. All right? If you are not an ethnic Jewish person, if you didn't take the ancestry test and it shows up Jewish, then you should see yourself in this. The rejection of Christ by the ethnic Jews has led to your inclusion in the work of salvation. As you look through the eyes of redemptive history, that is the marvelous thing that God is doing. Now, this happened in a couple of phases, and we're going to look at it in Scripture. The first phase was the rejection itself leading to the Gentile salvation itself. And we see this in verse 11. Rather, the Scripture says... Through their trespass, what happened? Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Pretty simple. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Here's kind of how it worked. 
He's saying if the Jewish people had not rejected Christ, then what could have happened is that the gospel spread only among Jewish people. But if you look at the grace of God in history, you get the passages, so study the book of Acts, right? The history of the early church. And you get to passages like Acts chapter 13, 46, 47. And you see Paul and Barnabas, they typically went in first to the synagogues, the Jewish synagogues, and they would proclaim the gospel to their own kinsmen. But then their kinsmen would reject Christ as they proclaimed the gospel. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Do you remember our theme verse, Romans chapter one, verse 16, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Y'all remember that and what we've been memorizing? So the gospel came first to the Jews. So they went to these villages. They would go first to the synagogues. It was necessary the gospel come first to you. But then what happened? But since you thrust it aside and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. So what happening is the Jewish people in the synagogues go, heck no. We're not depending on anybody else. We're doing our thing. The way to be saved is by all our own self-righteousness, us keeping the law perfectly. They would reject Christ. But because of that, Paul and Barnabas said, we're going to turn to non-Jewish people. We're turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. So again, Jew first and then the Greek. But inevitably, what happened is their failure This is verse 12 now in the scripture. I skipped ahead just a little bit. Their failure means what? Riches for the Gentiles. Because the Jews rejected Christ, Gentiles accepted Christ, had the opportunity to receive. So the first stage is they rejected, Gentiles were saved. Now the second stage is this. After the Gentiles accepted salvation, the Jewish people became jealous. They became jealous of the Gentiles. It says here, so as to make Israel Jealous. Fascinating. (laughs) They actually started to become jealous of what was, of of the obvious work of God among those who are not of their ethnic people. Paul himself says, now I'm speaking to you as Gentiles, this is verse 13, inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. It's fascinating how this happens. Uh, One example of this could be Acts chapter six. So again, if you study the history of the early church, uh, you could probably give another example of this in Acts chapter eight. We'll stick with this one for right now. As the church was formed, one of the things that happened early in Acts chapter six is they ended up appointing deacons to help serve all the practical needs that were happening. People were bringing in their money as you do even today. We pull our money together, we become generous together because of God's generosity us. We give generously so that others could have need. Like this week we give to India, we give to help uh, other missionary families, we give to help things in the city, we give to support the work of people knowing Christ here in our church and maturing in faith, and we are pooling money together. And what was happening is they appointed deacons to distribute the money to widows and to the poor. And this amazing movement was happening as the generosity was flowing out of the church all of a sudden we read a great number of priests became obedient to the faith. The priests were the ones who should have been doing this all along. It was their assignment, Deuteronomy, to be doing the very things that the actual alive in Christ church was doing. They begin to see what's happening amongst the true church, the real movement of the Spirit of God, and it provokes them to want to be a part of that and they become believers. So Israel, again and again and again, they become jealous of the Gentiles. And third and finally, eventually what you have is more of Israel that begins to believe. Look back at verse 12. Now if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? Paul's speaking to something happening in the future we'll get to in section three. And he says, now I'm speaking to you as Gentiles in so much as I'm an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to make Jews jealous and thus save some of them. His intention here, he's eyeing, again, 
the fact that the fullness of Jewish people have not come to faith. There are still more out there who will come to believe. He's saying their fullness is coming, and he's saying, I have an ambition to see them come to Christ. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? Again, he's speaking of something happening in the future, but life from the dead. He's seeing a day that their rejection turns into acceptance. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Again, a little turning into a lot. So he's seeing a day that more of Israel will believe. Now, here's why this is important. Okay, this is again heady. I'm going to, have to press into your heart, okay? But you need to understand that God has not given up on the Jewish people. Paul is saying, I have not given up on the Jewish people. And he's saying to you, I am asking that you realize we should not together give up on the Jewish people. God has not, God has not abandoned them. He is still working. He has not given up on them completely. And really, you could think about this with all lost people. We know that God is merciful. He's slow to anger. He, he longs for people to believe. This is true of the Jewish people. This is true of lost people today. Now, where this hits our heart is we should be humbled. We all here today should be humbled by God's undeserved grace. I want to get into this weird little thing about the olive tree, all right? Verse 17, but if some of the branches are broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others, you now share in the nourishing of the root of the olive tree. Now, what we know, scholars like William Ramsey have helped us see this. There's three different ways you can kind of graft in a wild shoot to an olive tree, and this on the screen illustrates those three ways. You could put a, cut a little hole, you can kind of slice the bark, kind of shove it down in the middle where it's sliced, or you can actually attach it with string, just slice a whole piece off and attach it with string and let it grow. He says, in exceptional circumstances, it's customary to reinvigorate an olive tree, which is ceasing to bear fruit by grafting it with a shoot of a wild olive, so that the sap of the tree ennobles the wild shoot and the tree, now again, as a whole, begins to bear life. This is an actual picture of option three, where they cut off a piece of the side and they've taped together a wild olive shoot. All right? Now, what Paul is saying there, he says, you need to recognize something. You, here, Excuse me, my pencil went dead. All right. He's saying you are what? The wild olive shoot. So you go, well, there's some piece of the olive tree that's been broken off, but you are the wild olive shoot. You are the one, he's saying, non-ethnic Jews, who have been grafted in the others, and now you share in the nourishing root of that tree. And what he's saying to you is this, verse 18. So, do not then become arrogant toward the branches. Because if you are, you gotta remember something. It is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. In other words, you're getting life from the trunk of that tree. If apart from that, you would not have life. You would just fall off and die. You're getting life from that. Now, yes, the whole tree is being made stronger. It's actually being encouraged to grow more because you've been grafted in. That's what happens with olive trees. But don't you get proud about that because you actually need that tree too. Here's the point. We should be grateful, friends, all of us, for the opportunity to be included in God's plan of salvation through faith in Christ. We should be grateful. It is grace 
that has given us what we now enjoy. God had begun something with Jewish people and now he's extended it to Gentile people and we should all see ourselves as that little wild root that God has attached to this existing tree and recognize that we are now receiving life because we have been grafted in. And that is not our choosing, but God's wonderful choosing of us. Aren't you grateful? And secondly, we need to be humble. Verse 19, but you will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that's true. They, but they were broken off because of their unbelief. And you stand fast through faith, so don't become proud, but fear. In other words, how dare you to think that you are better than those branches that were broken off so that you could be grafted in? They were broken off because they rejected you were saved because of God's grace to accept you. But don't you allow that to produce pride in you. Rather, keep your heart humble. Because don't you recognize that that kind of pride is the very thing that caused them to be broken off? And if you begin that direction, what would that say about your heart? For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who fall, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. In other words, your best posture is not to look around at what is happening with other people, but to keep your own heart humble and submitted and believing in Christ. Be grateful. We should be humble, friends, um, and avoid pride at all costs, because we know that our salvation is by grace alone. Ephesians chapter two, eight and nine speaks to this passage, I believe, very directly, for by grace we have been saved through faith. And it is not of our own doing, it is the gift of God. It's not a result of works that we may boast. He says in verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh who were called the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were the wild olive branch that was left to die over here on its own. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now God has taped you. He has grafted you on to the olive tree. Now you who are in Christ Jesus, once who were far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In other words, aren't you grateful? Can we not be more grateful for the grace of God and salvation? But the other thing, friends, that I wanna to talk to you about is we should also be humble and avoid pride knowing that our growth, not just our salvation is by grace alone, but our growth is by grace alone. I am very concerned about my own heart, and I am very concerned about others in our church who are growing in grace, who have gotten to a point where you understand things of God's word, you understand things of the Lord that others do not yet understand. You have been growing up in faith. You have been maturing. You have been being sanctified by the Spirit of God. But friends, we have to be careful not to look around in prideful judgment against those who have not yet understood those things or have not yet grown in those ways. We are to be one who sees all of our life by God's grace, our salvation and our sanctification. And as we're growing, I can tell you one sign that you're actually not growing in the heart, you're just growing in the head, is when you're supposedly growing in Christ and yet your heart is not deeply humble and grateful and surrendered. When we grow in the head but not in the heart, we become prideful and arrogant. We look down on others, we judge. But when we grow both in the head and the heart, we stay humble, knowing that all of our salvation and our sanctification is by the grace of God. Paul implores you here in this passage, don't take your salvation for granted. See that it is the grace of God 
Don't become prideful and hard-hearted like those who were cut off or else that may be you. Stay humble, stay grateful, be encouraged. Be encouraged by God's grace. Finally, I just wanna say um, we should be hopeful in God's mercy and not disdainful and prideful judgment for those who have yet to believe. We should be hopeful in God's mercy and not disdainful in prideful judgment for those who have yet to believe because verse 23 and 24 speak to the hopeful opportunity that there may be a day that others might be saved like you or might grow like you. Even if they do not continue in unbelief, they will be grafted in for God has the power to graft them in again. In other words, look around at people in your life who you might get frustrated with because of their sin. There are people in your life today that probably frustrate you because of their sin. And you got a choice. Are you gonna be prideful and judgmental against them? Or are you gonna recognize that if it were not for God's grace, you would also be like them? And instead of being prideful, prideful and judgmental, you've gotta be humble and grateful and use hope, namely prayer, that God would work in their life in the way that he has so graciously worked in yours. Of all people, of all people in the world, Christians should never be known as judgmental, prideful, condemning people. Because all of us are recipients of God's amazing and unmerited grace. Of all people in the world, we should be known by other Christians but especially by the world who is lost and needy for Jesus, we should be known by our humility and our love and our hopefulness and our long-sufferingness alongside of people. We should be known for giving grace because we have received grace. Point number three, and I get to a close, all right? I'm moving to the end. Point number three, head and heart, is this. You've got to understand not only the remnant of Israel, the inclusion of the Gentiles, but you have to understand, number three, how Israel in the future will be saved. God's not finished with them yet. And again, this ties into the last point, but the hard thing on this one is to be hopeful for what is to come. If you want to understand this, this passage from verse 25 to 32, you've got to understand this. Despite their current unbelief, God has a plan. He does, to save the ethnic people of Israel, a large majority of them in the future. God has a plan. God is not finished saving ethnic Jews. He says in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, a partial hardening. Look at the word there. He says partial, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So it tells you God is not finished. But two, you gotta remember, Jesus came for all people, including Jewish people too. He says in verse 26, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He'll banish ungodliness from Jacob. And he says, this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. We know that Jesus came to save all ethnicities, including ethnic Jews. There's not a separate way of salvation for them. The deliverer, Jesus himself, has come for them. I reject the idea of two covenant theology. If you know what I'm talking about in the theological world, that is not what I hold to because I believe Romans 11 clearly teaches that we are all saved the same way. Jewish and Gentiles are all saved because of a deliverer whose name is Jesus Christ. So we need to pray for Jewish people to come to believe Christ and we need to share with Jewish people that they might have opportunity to believe Christ. But third, he says in this section, a great mass, one day is coming, a great mass of Jewish people will be saved in the end by trusting Jesus Christ. He says, verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he'll banish ungodliness from Jacob. 
There is going to come a day when we see God work out this beautiful plan and there's gonna come a day when he's gonna bring a revival. Billy Graham ain't seen nothing on this day, all right? We're talking about there's gonna come a day where God is gonna work in a special way among ethnic Jewish people to bring many, many Jewish people to salvation. How do we know this? Look at Revelation chapter seven, verses one to three, picture of heaven. After this, I saw four angels standing at four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, so that no wind might blow on earth or sea or anything else. Then I saw another angel descending from the, ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. He called to me with a loud voice the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, don't do it until we've sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And then what does he see? Heard the number of those sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And he goes through and he names all 12 tribes and he numbers them and he's saying, don't you see that in the end, God, it will, be, it will be shown God had a heart for all ethnicities and he has a heart for the Jewish people. So don't lose hope because God is not finished yet. So be hopeful for what is to come. Where does this lead us? Before we close the sermon with point four, I just say this. I don't think we talk enough about how we should pray for and share with Jewish people. Y'all know Memphis has the largest Jewish population in the whole state of Tennessee. There are people in your neighborhood who are Jewish. There are people in your workplace who are Jewish. There are people who shop at the stores you shop at, either restaurants you eat at that are Jewish. And here's what I gotta tell you. You can, you should develop deep relationships with Jewish people. They are wonderful people made in God's image. And they're really fun too. But you should pray for them and you should actively share the gospel with them because you can know that God has a heart for the Jewish people. Don't lose hope because the Bible says clearly that we are going to see many ethnic Jewish people coming to faith in Christ. How will they come? By God's sovereignty, but also our responsibility. And how will they hear in whom they, I mean, how will they believe in whom they've never heard? And you get to be one who shares the good news. As regards to the gospel, they're enemies, but as regards to election, they're beloved for the sake of the forefathers. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. I close with point four. And that is to say this. Point four is this. We should wonder in our God who saves. We should wonder in our God who saves. And the heart thing of this is also the head thing of this. We should be worshipful toward God, the one who is over us all. Verses 11 to 33 can be summed up in the main point that you already wrote down today. So there's nothing added to write down. We should be amazed at the depth of God's wisdom and knowledge and give him glory for his mercy and grace. Oh, the depth, Paul says, of the riches, of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? He quotes from Job and then from Isaiah. Who has given a gift of him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be the glory forever. Friends, God wants your head, but he also wants your heart. Truth should always go with worship, and worship should always go with truth. They go together. But the end of these very complex chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, yes, there's so much to understand with our heads and our thinking minds that God has given us for good to wrap our hands around in history and with the truth of scripture, there's so much to understand. But truth has to go with worship. At the end of the day, it's not just about understanding, it's about surrendering, it's about trusting, it's, it's about wondering. God is completely sovereign in salvation. And Paul proves to us that when you exalt God, when you make yourself a person that just wants to live a life knowing God and exalting God and making much of God, my mind goes first to him, my life goes first to him, my time goes first to him, 
when God is the center of my all, and when I deeply trust him, I mean deeply trust him in the nooks and crannies of every facet of my life, when I come to a place where it's all about God and I lay myself down, truly lay it down, not like pretend to lay it down, but I'm still holding on to it, but truly release myself into his hands, it is the most joy-filled life you can imagine. True life is found in God, and true life is found in trusting God. And Paul says, won't you come with me on this journey of wonder and worship? As Tim Keller says, you don't need to understand everything to praise the God who does. Thanks again for listening to this Bible teaching from Island Community Church. We want to encourage you to join us for worship in person soon. No podcast can replace God's good design of gathering with other believers in a local church. For more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church, visit us at iccmemphis.com. We offer a prayer of blessing for you from Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.